Hey, this is Andy Lucas, pastor of Emmaus Road Church in Fort Collins, Colorado. Thanks for listening to our podcast. We hope this message helps you grow in your walk with Christ. If you'd like to support this ministry, visit theroadfc.org and click the giving link. Over the last three weeks, uh, we've been in a series called Principles of Change. Uh, The purpose of the series has been to explore how we can partner with the Spirit of God uh, to affect change in our life. Uh, All of us have things that we want to change or that we need to change. Maybe it's a a negative attitude. Maybe it's a, a habitual sin that just doesn't seem to be going away. Uh, and we've been, we've been talking about how do we really uh, affect change in our life, uh, recognizing, first of all, that it's, the, it's really the Spirit of God that does the work. It's God who changes us. Uh, but there are things that we can do that, uh, where we come alongside of what the Spirit of God is doing in our life, and so we've been talking about that. Uh, I hope this series has been uh, a help to you. Uh, what we've done is we, each of the first three weeks, we have uh, asked a question Uh, And then out of that question, we've developed uh, a principle, uh, a change principle uh, that we can hopefully hold on to, grab on to, that will help us uh, affect positive change, good and godly change in our life. The first week, we asked the question, why do you want to change? And out of that, we developed the principle that, uh, that says this, true change happens when our motivation to change is to glorify God and to live more into our identity in Christ. Uh, And what we talked about that first week is a lot of times our motivation to change is simply to prove ourselves to God, which we simply can't do because his love is offered to us freely. Uh, But we also talked about how sometimes our our motivation to change is to be impressive to others. That really we just want to, we want to prove ourselves to others. We want to impress others. Uh, But that's that's not healthy either because uh, it really makes uh, other people the metric. It gets us lost in this game of comparison that can be so unhealthy in our lives. And so what we ultimately landed on is that our motivation to change must simply be so that God is glorified through our lives. uh, And that I can live more fully into my identity in Christ, which of course leads me into all kinds of freedom. The second week we, we asked the question, well, how are you going to change? And we developed this principle, the real, the real change comes from the heart. And the heart is shaped by participating in rhythms and rituals of worship. Uh, we're often tempted to think that change can simply happen just by uh, think, right thinking or right belief. And in fact, uh, that's, that's a big part of uh, modern church culture is right belief. That's why we get in fights when we believe differently, right? Is because uh, we, we've sort of like landed on the, the thing. You have to believe correctly in order to, to really be uh, a disciple of Christ or you have to, uh, if you're really going to affect change. And, and we, what we said was right thinking and right belief is obviously important. And a lot of what we do in this setting is, is help to equip you so that you can believe the right things and think the right what things and according to theology and understand the character of God. But, but right thinking and right belief isn't enough just all on its own. For us to change, our hearts must change. Uh, which that, of course, led to the question, well, then how do our hearts change? And what we, what we realized is that the habits, the, the rituals, the rhythms of our life actually uh, either affirm our disordered desires of our heart or they challenge those disordered desires. And so by, by gathering together in a worship setting, by singing songs, by gathering around the Lord's table, by opening our hearts and our ears to a sermon, all of those things are helping to form and shape our hearts and they're aiming the desire of our heart toward good and godly things. And so real change comes from the heart, but the heart is shaped by participating in rhythms and rituals of worship. This is why, of course, the regular gathering of the community is so important in our lives and needs to be a priority. 
And then uh, last week we, we talked about, we asked this question, what truths do you need to churn to? What truths do you need to churn to? And the principle that came out of that is that change comes from continually revisiting the truths of the gospel in order to dispel the lies I tend to believe. Uh, what we talked about last week is that uh, behind every single sin is a lie that we have believed. And it's either a lie uh, about who God is, about the nature of, of who God is, or it's a lie about ourselves and who we are. And you can trace any sin back to a lie that's related to one of those two things. Now, we got more and more specific with that, but generally speaking, behind every single sin is a lie that we have believed. And the only way to dispel that lie is just continually returning to the truths of the gospel. And, and so the, the practical nature of last week was, uh, what, what are the ways in which we can just learn to preach to ourselves and what are the ways in which we can just continually return uh, to the truth that we know is, is unchanging uh, in a forever changing and fluid world? Um, what I have tried to do in this series <clears throat> is avoid empty self-help jargon. Uh, principles of change. From, from just the, the series title alone, you might think, oh, this is just, a, uh, just another great self-help thing from the pulpit. Uh, but I've actually tried really hard to avoid empty self-help jargon uh, because my experience in working with people and my experience in living with myself is, is the self-help stuff, if it works at all, it only helps for a season. Uh, but it doesn't really affect long-term and real authentic change in our lives. And so what I've tried to do is I've tried to, to dig a bit deeper in order to come up with principles that can truly help us. Um, but I want to say that and I want to make sure that you know this as we kind of close this series down. Change is never automatic. Uh, we shouldn't believe that, hey, I listened to the, that preacher for three weeks and we talked about principles of change. I've got the three principles down. Uh, and so now change ought to just happen in my life. Change is never automatic. It requires sacrifice on our part. And, and my prayer is really that these principles, uh, that you will take these principles and begin to work uh, to come alongside of the work of the Spirit in our lives so that we can really change for the glory of God. And so my prayer is that as a community, we will change, but for the glory of God. Uh, not that we would change for your own glory, uh, not that we'll change so that we can be impressive or popular, uh, but that we together as a church will change for the glory of God. That has been my prayer. Uh, I also need to say that I'm really indebted to author Tim Chester and his book called You Can Change uh, that has been a huge help in putting this series together. Uh, but to end the series, I want to discuss three roadblocks to change. Uh, three things that will stunt our spiritual growth, three things that will take the thing that we're trying to change in our life or that we want to change in our life and, and will uh, prevent that or if nothing else, certainly frustrate uh, that thing. These, these roadblocks uh, to change. Typically, and what we've done throughout uh, this entire uh, series is we've had a central passage of Scripture that we look at, and out of that we build a principle of change. Today's a little bit different because we're going to be looking at a variety of Scriptures uh, and just talking more practically about what are the things uh, that tend to stunt uh, the, the process of change uh, in our life. And so that's where we're headed today, roadblocks of change. Um, and I promise you uh, that even though we're talking about roadblocks to change and things that will stop your change process, uh, this is a hope-filled message. I promise we'll land on hope, okay? Uh, some of you are like, wow, great. This is really encouraging. So uh, 
But let's talk about roadblocks to change. And I have uh, three of them, three roadblocks to change. The first roadblock to change is excusing sin. Excusing sin. Again, if you want to follow along, you have your notes insert uh, available to you. Uh, but our first roadblock to change is excusing sin. And what I mean by that is often we want to, uh, we want to, blame, we want to uh, shift the blame of, of our sin to someone or to something else. In fact, the very first sin uh, in the Garden of Eden began with the serpent uh, causing Adam and Eve to doubt God's goodness. Uh, did God really say that you can't eat that fruit from that particular tree? Uh, it was this, this lie that, that said, you know what, with that command, with that boundary, God must be holding out on you. Um, but of course, that, uh, with that doubt... Uh, this, this negative doubt in their life. The serpent led Eve to believe uh, that God was holding out on them. She ate the fruit. And uh, I want to read what happens next in Genesis chapter 3. This is found in verses 11 through 13. And uh, you can just listen to this uh, with me. But this is, this is what happened right after uh, the, the original sin, the very first sin. Uh, and he said, uh, that's God talking to Adam and Eve. God said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree that I commanded you not to eat from? And the man said, uh, the woman you put here with me. <laughs> Come on now. Like, do you just want to say like, Adam, really? Because you were so thankful for her up until this point, right? Like things were going great. Well, the woman that you put here with me, she gave me some of the fruit from the tree and then I ate it. Uh, and the scripture records that he was actually standing right there, but, but that, that's beside the point. Uh, then verse 13 says, Then the Lord said to the woman, What is this that you have done? Uh, and then the woman said, Well, the serpent deceived me, uh, and, and then I ate. And, and so this, this event has happened. God is just trying to find out what happened. And because I have a, a, an eight-year-old now and a four-year-old in the house, I know exactly how this goes. Uh, there's an event in the home. Hey, what happened? And then fingers point to everyone else, right? And, and we, want to, we want to shift the blame. We want to say, it wasn't my fault. It was someone else's fault. Uh, this, is, uh, this is why, of course, toddlers and elementary kids do this. is because Adam and Eve uh, were, in fact, doing it. Adam eats the fruit. He blames Eve. Eve turns and blames the serpent. Uh, and all of a sudden, we are trying to excuse the sin and disobedience in our life. Uh, you see, it's easy to try to blame our sin on things like our context, our upbringing, our personal history, or our, even our biology. In fact, consider these, uh, consider these excuses for sin uh, if, for, with someone who is struggling with anger. If they were to, to excuse their sin based on their context, they would say, you know, he just made me so mad. It was really unfair. And, and you would have done the same if you had been in my situation. And so, once again, we're, we're, we're kind of taking this disobedience, this sin in our life, and we're saying it wasn't, it's not, we're not taking responsibility for it, but instead we're, we're blaming it on context. We're blaming it on something else, the context in which we found ourselves. What about our upbringing? Uh, for someone struggling with anger, they might say, you know, I take after my father. Uh, he used to get angry, and I learned my anger from him. Or, our, or even our personal history, you'd be, you'd be an angry person too if you've been what I've been through. I mean, if you've experienced what I've experienced, then you would be the exact same way that I am. And you would be dealing with the same kinds of stuff. 
Or what about our biology? Have you ever found yourself uh, maybe struggling with a sin? You know that this needs to change in your life, uh, and yet you just find yourself saying, it's just the way that I am, and there's nothing I can do about it. Now, now here's what I want to say. I don't want to discount any of these. uh, Because the the reality is that these could uh, all be true. And in fact, these external factors around us, these things like our upbringing, our personal history, our biology, and our context, all of these things can be triggers for sin in our life. They can even dictate how sin is expressed in our life. Uh, that, That if I grew up with a father who was angry and maybe even abusive, then that is going to play into all sorts of things in my own life. So I'm not trying to discount these, but what I am trying to say is that these do not explain our sin fully. And what we need to do then is, is I would encourage us that rather than excusing sin, I want to encourage us to begin taking responsibility for our own sin. And, and just being able to, to, to own it and to, to grab a hold of it and, and recognize our own sinfulness, I think, is, is a healthy exercise to do. And, and maybe let's, let's use a little bit different language. Rather than just sort of saying, let's, let's recognize our own sinfulness, maybe let's say this, let's embrace our own brokenness. That, that what if we as people were just to embrace our own brokenness? And and here's how I want you to to think about that. One way to do that is to talk about your sin, whatever that thing is in your life, in terms of disobedience instead of defeat. So when you think about this thing that you want to change in your life, this thing that you struggle with, uh, I want you to think about it not as you are defeated by that thing, but rather in terms of disobedience. Because here's the deal. If we feel defeated by a sin then it, is, it becomes very easy to blame it on something outside of ourselves that is causing us to sin. It, it's something outside of our control. If we're defeated by sin, then it's something outside of our control. And, and I just want to encourage us to say, let's take, begin to take personal responsibility. And if we take personal responsibility and we talk about how we were or we are disobedient, then what it does is it brings that struggle home. It brings that brokenness home a little bit. And it brings it into our own life. And guess what happens then? When we bring it home and we recognize it for what it is, what happens then is we open ourselves up for God to work in the midst of that. But listen, as long as I feel defeated by sin and I think that I'm controlled by the sin based on someone or something else, then my prayers are centered on asking God to change them or that thing. Are you with me? But if I can take personal responsibility and recognize my own brokenness, my own disobedience, own the sin, bring it home a little bit, then my prayers are focused and centered on God changing me. Now, I know this isn't easy to hear, but I think it's very, very important for us to hear. And I I, I see my role as a pastor and as a shepherd not to just have you come once a week on Sunday morning and just tickle your ears a bit. But I I I, I find my role as a shepherd and a pastor is to offer you truth and the hope of the gospel. And I believe that we need to come to a place where we can begin to take responsibility for our own sin. 
Now, I want to make it. Uh, now, some of you are very uncomfortable with this idea of uh, this. It has control over me. It's it's outside of my context. Those kinds of things. And so here's what I here's what I want to do. I want to make a, an important distinction and difference between temptation and sin. Temptation is an inclination towards sinful action, and it is often beyond our control and outside of our control. Sin is acting on the temptation. And so we are often not in control of when or where or how temptation comes to us. But I want to say that we are in control on whether or not we give in to that temptation. Does that make sense? So this idea of taking responsibility for our own brokenness, our own disobedience, allows us to, to uh, own the sin. And then that, in, in effect, opens ourselves up to the work of God. In our lives, because in taking responsibility for sin and disobedience, we can more properly rely on the power of God to change us. And in fact, I would say until we have taken responsibility for our sin, until we have embraced our own brokenness, we will never fully recognize even our need for the Savior. And we will probably live our lives with sort of on a moral kind of high ground, walking around with a lot of self righteousness until we come to a place where we embrace our brokenness and our need for the Savior. It turns out that in the uh, wisdom of the historic church, so the thousands of year history of the church, uh, they knew this. And so they built into the church calendar a season of the year to do just exactly that, to recognize our own brokenness before God. And they said, you know what? If we're ever going to celebrate the beauty of the resurrection and the new life made available to us at Easter, we need to pause and recognize our own sinfulness. And so built into uh, the way in which Christians tell time is a season called Lent, which is designed specifically for the people of God to embrace their own brokenness so that we can then go celebrate the freedom, mercy, grace, and victory of the resurrection. And I think the wisdom of the church is to say, if you just live 100% in sort of loud victory of resurrection all the time, then you're, going, you're probably going to err on the side of self-righteousness because you haven't embraced your own, own brokenness. Uh, and so the first roadblock to change is we're, we are so prone to excusing sin. And, and church, I just want to call us to an embracing of our own brokenness that will allow us to experience the power of God and his change, his transforming power in our life and his change in our lives. Does that make any sense, church? I can't hear you. All right. All right. The second roadblock is minimizing sin, excusing sin, but we also tend to minimize sin. Uh, so we min- when we minimize sin, we say, oh, this isn't that big of a deal. It was only a small thing. It doesn't really hurt anybody. At least I'm not like him. <laughs> we tend to minimize sin, our own sin, by um, maximizing or magnifying the sin of other people. So we say, at least I'm not like him. Or we might say, overall, I'm not that bad. It's okay. We also minimize our sin, by the way, when it is particularly in line with a cultural value. So if the value of the gospel, if if it ever runs sort of against the current of a cultural value, we tend to way over-minimize that sin because it's so culturally accepted. And and so so a lot of times, 
the, the value of the, of the culture and the values of the gospel are not in line, but we tend to minimize it when we're just sort of living uh, the assumed values of the culture, but with a Jesus sticker, we tend to really minimize that. Um, and, and so we tend to minimize our sin. But it's also, of course, it's very natural to minimize our own sin, to emphasize the sin of others. And uh, let me just take a moment here to say that I believe that this, this idea, uh, this, this, this minimizing of our own sin, emphasizing the sin of others, is, is actually really prominent in the evangelical church. Can I say that? It's really prominent in the evangelical church, and it is made manifest when the church gets caught up in being the moral police of the world. Uh, being the moral police of the world is, in fact, a position of we are trying to emphasize the sins of the culture while we minimize our own. Uh, at best, this alienates people by creating an us and them barrier. At worst, it leads to building an entire platform of being against a, a certain against people with a certain label of brokenness and then wondering why broken people don't come to our churches. It may be that broken people don't go into churches because the church has built a platform against them. Uh, we need to realize that bullying people through legislation is not the hope that Christ calls us to embody. Wow, did he just say that? Um, so if we, will then, <laughs> if we will then admit our brokenness with humility, stop minimizing our own sin, uh, and serve people with a self-sacrificial love, what I think that we'll find out is that God is actively healing the world and he's also actively desiring to heal us. Right? And that's the good news of the gospel. The good news of the gospel is not, I'm better than you and so I'm going to pass a law against you. The good news of the gospel is, oh, we are all broken people in need of a savior and God is about the business of healing this place. Amen? And so let's participate in the healing that God wants to do in the world. And let's get busy doing that. And I think that would be well worth our efforts. And so what I want us to do, so if, we're, if we are to stop minimizing sin, then what are we to do? Well, I think the first thing that we are to do is to, to call sin, sin, and call evil, evil. Like, let's just call things as they are, both in our own lives, right, embracing our own brokenness, but also just around. Let's just name injustices that we see and then, and then speak hope into those injustices. But let's not just speak hope, let's work for hope. Let's, let's push toward hope in the midst of injustice in the world. And so whenever we see injustice what, of whatever flavor, we ought to be as the people of God asking, what does God's justice look like in this situation? And let's pray toward that, let's push toward that, let's work toward that. But a lot of times we, we, we just sort of double down on the injustice because we're, we're trying to keep a, a real clean, pure barrier between, well, us and them. And, and here's why I think we just need to name injustices and call sin, sin, and call evil, evil. Because sin grieves the heart of God. And, and I, just want us to, I just want us to sit there a little bit and recognize that. That sin and brokenness and evil and injustice grieves the heart of God. Oh, which is why I'm so heartbroken when injustice happens 
and we give God the credit or we blame God or something happens in our life and we become victims of grotesque sin and we look that person in the eye and we say, this is God's best for you. Church, that is terrible theology because sin and evil grieves the heart of God. But I want, us to, I want to make sure that we know why sin grieves the heart of God. It does, sin does not grieve the heart of God because he is so offended by the filth of sin. Sin grieves the heart of God because he loves humanity and sin enslaves people. You, you see, we can, we can take two approaches here. We can say that The sin grieves the heart of God because he is so disgusted by the filth of your sin. But that does not line up with Jesus, with the life of Jesus. And and God looks like Jesus, right? And, And so God is not sort of standing there saying, oh, I'm so disgusted by the filth of your sin that I'm grieved by it. No, sin breaks the heart of God because he sees that people are enslaved by sin and he desires freedom for us. And so sin grieves the heart of God because he desires freedom for us. The other truth is, we often minimize sin because while we hate the consequences of sin, we still love the sin itself. And so we minimize it. Let me say that again. Sometimes we're in a position where we hate the consequences of sin, but we actually still love the sin itself. And so we tend to really minimize it and make it not that big of a deal. How about overconsumption, right? (laughs) We might minimize that. Because we want to we take away the consequences of sin, that little tinge, the conviction of the Holy Spirit saying we shouldn't be, we shouldn't be doing that or, or, or purchasing that or buying that or living like this kind of lifestyle and yet we love sort of the, the comfort, the security the, all the, the, that all the stuff brings. Um, well, if, if we're in a position where we, we don't like the consequences of sin but we actually still love the sin itself so we tend to minimize the sin, what this means is that our repentance is often focused on feeling sorry about the consequences of sin, not feeling sorry about the sin because the sin grieves the heart of God, right? Sometimes our repentance is actually feeling sorry about the consequence of sin, not the sin itself, which is why I want us to understand, church, that sin, just sin, grieves the heart of God. And a lot of times, if it were a possibility to do away with the consequences of sin but keep the sin, we would take it. And so, God, would you help us to come to a place where we, live, where we are grieved by our sin because you are grieved by our sin? Lord, would you help us to come to a place where we are grieved by our sin because you are grieved? And so instead of minimizing sin, let's be honest about it. The third, the third and final roadblock. The third and final roadblock to change is hiding sin. So we tend to excuse sin. We tend to, uh, we tend to minimize sin. And we also tend to hide sin. Uh, Proverbs 28, uh, verse 13 says, Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Finds mercy. Whoever conceals their sins does not prosper, but the one who confesses and renounces them finds mercy. Uh, Sin is like mold. It loves the dark. Um, and, And hiding in the dark leads to sin. And sin leads to hiding in the dark. Let me say that again. Hiding in the dark leads to sin. And sin leads to hiding in the dark. And if sin is like mold, 
because it loves the dark, then what that means is that sort of symbiotic relationship between the darkness and and sinfulness. Uh, If we're hiding sin, we're actually giving it more and more power over our lives and in our hearts. Does this make sense? In fact, we could return to the creation story that after their disobedience, Adam and Eve hid from God because they were ashamed. And that's our natural tendency. Anytime that we find ourselves uh, with sin in our life, we we tend to hide it. But the problem is anytime we hide it, we give it more and more power. Sin becomes more powerful in the dark, but it loses its power in the light. And so what we need to do is, is we need to is we need to just come to a place where we can trust in the mercy of God, the forgiveness of God, the grace of God, but also we we need to come to a place where we can trust in the mercy, grace, and forgiveness of the community of God and then begin to bring sin out into the light. Now, I'm not talking about like a testimony time where we just pop up and everybody just shares their deepest, darkest secrets, right? That would be very, that would be a huge downer, (laughs) Everybody would be like, I am never, ever going to that church again. But what I'm talking about is in the context of trusted relationship, it can be very, very healthy to just share struggle and embrace brokenness. And I think a lot of times as the people of God, we just think we've got to have everything together all the time. And that somehow struggle means that we're not victorious in Christ. You know, we come to church and we sing all these songs of, of victory. And that's great. And we should because victory is available to us in Christ. But in the moments when we struggle, we need to be honest about that with someone. We need to bring that sin and that broken just, just out into the light. Because if we don't, we are allowing that sin more and more power, more and more influence, and a, a stronger and stronger grip in our heart. And, and so sometimes we just need to be able to go to our spouse and say, look, this is, what, this is what's going on. Sometimes we need to be able to go to a trusted friend and say, hey, I'm really struggling. Whatever it is, if it's in the dark, it has more power. If it's brought into the light, it loses its power and and allows space and room for the Spirit of God to work and give you that victory. Sometimes we hide our sin because we want to protect our reputation and keep people's approval as well. And um, again, we've already said that that living our lives seeking approval for others uh, to base our value as a person off of, that I'm only as valuable as much as I am approved. That's a very, very dangerous way to live. Um, and so sometimes we keep sin in the dark just as a, as a way of, of trying to keep our reputation or, or keep uh, people's approval. And, and I believe that God would uh, desire freedom for us uh, more than reputation, right? Um, the only antidote to hiding sin is confessing sin. The only antidote to hiding sin is confessing sin. And there are really two kinds of confession. There's, there's corporate confession and there's private confession. Uh, private or, or personal confession is, is when we confess our sin or we bring our sin out into the light uh, in a very small relational context with a trusted friend, uh, with a, a spouse, uh, with um, a, a close roommate, whoever it is. It's this person that we, we trust uh, to bear our soul. And, and this becomes very, very helpful because uh, it is both specific 
and provides healing for the sin. Did you know that bringing it out into the open provides healing for that sin? Uh, author and pastor Aaron Stern says in his book, What's Your Secret? He, he says this. He, sa- he notes that confessing to God, in confessing to God, we find forgiveness. In confessing to others, we find healing. And, and I think that's really, really important to note. That in confessing to God, we find forgiveness. And in confessing to others, we find healing. But we also practice a, a corporate confession, which is, which is less specific. Uh, it's more broad, more general. But we confess corporately because it reminds us that we are not alone in our brokenness. But that rather we are a community of people in need of healing. In a moment, we're going to confess our sin together by singing a song, We Confess. The words of this song are taken from the famous prayer of confession in the Book of Common Prayer, which I have also provided for you in your notes insert if you'd like to have a copy of it. Uh, but I pray that these roadblocks would be torn down in our lives. The roadblocks of excusing and hiding and minimizing sin. And I pray that they would be, they would be broken down in our lives so that we can live into our God-given identity and that we can be changed for his glory. Amen.